we turn together to the book of Acts, chapter 21. Yes, our text this morning is Acts 21, not 1 Corinthians 15, not Matthew 28, but Acts chapter 21. And it is my prayer this morning that we will see the purpose of our Lord Jesus Christ in His life, in His death, and in His resurrection for us in Acts 21. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. The Word of the Lord is completely without error. It is completely sufficient to guide us through faith and life. And it is completely authoritative. Acts chapter 21. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. (coughs) Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would indeed show us your truth from your word, that you would teach us, but more than teaching us knowledge, Lord, you would change our lives. 
You would teach us to trust You more and more. You would shape us more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all of this in the one and only matchless name of the risen Jesus Christ. Amen. The will of God is a difficult thing. It's difficult for us to deal with. It's hard, often at times, to discern what the will of God is. Should I go here or should I go there? Should I do this or should I do that? And then even when we are able to discern the will of God, it's often difficult to follow it. Because we look around and we say, well, why can't we do what I want to do? Look, look, what I want to do is even in the Bible. It's a biblical thing I want to do. Why is God in his providence giving this will to me? This is a real challenge for the Christian, but it is a necessary challenge because doing the will of God, forsaking our own will and taking His, obeying His word and His will is the mark of the greatest act of obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is what marked Him throughout the time of His scourging, His death, His continuing under the power of death, and His resurrection. In all these things, the phrase that we know so well from the Scripture, not my will, but your will be done. This is not just something that we admire about Jesus. This is something that the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ places in our lives so that we can declare with our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. How do we do the will of God? Well, I'd like us to see it in two ways this morning. First, we follow the will of God by forsaking ourselves, even as our Lord did. By forsaking our desires, our needs, our wants, and obeying the Lord. And then secondly, we do the will of God by following the Master. Following the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's begin then by looking at this chapter. What does it mean to forsake ourselves? Well, forsaking ourselves means, I think, three things. First, admitting. Second, understanding. And third, embracing. What do I mean by admitting? I mean the very first thing we need to do is admit that we don't know everything. Now, that sounds fairly simple, doesn't it? But perhaps you should ask the parent of any teen what it means not to know everything. 
Perhaps you should ask the wife of every husband what it means not to know everything. And the husband of every wife what it means not to know everything. Because you see, this is one of those things that we readily see the fault in everyone else but ourselves. We are sure that we know at least enough to make all of the right decisions that we need to make. But part of forsaking ourselves is understanding that the Lord has not given to us the attribute of omnipotence. He has reserved that for Himself. And we don't know everything because, frankly, we get wrapped up in the world and in life. We get wrapped up in places, we get wrapped up in people, we get wrapped up in events. And it makes it difficult for us to know what we're missing. We get wrapped up in places, places we have been, places we live, things that we have. But you see, this is not the case here with the Apostle Paul and his band of missionaries. Chapter 21 begins very interestingly... Interestingly, for what is left out, this is not a typical travel itinerary. Some of you that have traveled to to far lands, to Europe, to India, to Africa, you come back home with pictures and you say, this is Paris and this is Milan and this is Thailand and this is Bangkok and this is Beijing. Look at all of these things. But it's amazing that Paul and Luke record this magnificent sea journey in so boring a fashion. I'll give you just a taste, but I won't at least try to fall into the trap of thinking I know everything. They go first to this place, Kos. Sounds very nondescript. If I ask for a show of hands, my guess is fewer than 5% of us would even have ever heard of Kos. But I bet you've heard of Hippocrates and his oath, the father of medicine. Kos was where his school was founded. It was the medical community of the ancient world. But Luke can't be concerned with that. And then they go on to Rhodes. And Rhodes, we look at it and it's a bit funny. It's an R with an H after it. We wonder how we're supposed to pronounce it. And Luke doesn't bother to tell us that one of the ancient wonders of the world, the great Colossus of Rhodes, that ancient historians traveled months to see and find is there. But it's just a gigantic wonder of the world. Luke isn't concerned with that. And then they go on to Phoenicia, the great trading center of the world. And they go by Cyprus, one of the very first places that Paul went planting churches, and they don't even stop. If you'll forgive the pun, Cyprus is left on the left as they go right by. They wave to it. Nothing to be heard about about these things. Luke really could care less about the places of the world because Paul is on a divine mission. And Luke knows this. We think we know everything. We get wrapped up in places, but we also can get wrapped up in people, even in a good way. It shouldn't be lost on us that chapter 21 is another one of these we passages which tells us that again, Dr. Luke is present. He is with Paul. And that's why we have this eyewitness kind of account. Luke, the beloved physician, one of Paul's greatest co-workers, is with Paul again. How joyful that must have been for Paul 
as he traveled to Jerusalem to know that Luke and his other companions were with him. The start of this journey is a very difficult journey because even Paul can get wrapped up in people. Do you notice what happens here? It says, and when we had parted from them, in verse 1. Now, the them we need to remember are the Ephesian elders. Do you remember that scene? That scene outside Ephesus. The scene at Miletus where Paul is with the elders and he says, I'm going to see you for the very last time. And they grab him around the neck and they weep and they show their love for him. And now he has to leave them. But don't let the blandness of this English word rob you of the emotion of Paul and the church because the word here doesn't mean so long, see you later. The word here means that he was torn apart from them. You might even have an image in your mind of departing from someone at an airport. You know they have to go. They don't want to leave. And a companion grabs them and says, we have to go. We're going to miss the plane and rips you out of someone's arms. That's how dear the church at Ephesus was to Paul. He's torn away from them. And then he lands in a place called Tyre. And this is an emphasis to us of how dear Christians should be to each other, how often we can get wrapped up in each other because of the work of Jesus. He's there just seven days. He's just left a place where he's ministered for three years, and he's on a vacation in town. How many of you, when you go someplace, even for two weeks and worship in the same church, two Lord's Days, really get to know the people? But Paul... Once again here, he spends seven days entire, and it's almost a repeat of the scene at Ephesus. We might even say it's the ante is raised a bit. Not just the men go out, but the women and the children, and they go out to the beach, and they do the same thing. They kneel down and pray because, you see, they're dear to one another. This should remind us of something. That sometimes even love, even love for one another can blind us at times to the Word of God. Because we're going to see in a moment here that these Tyrians, they love Paul, but it causes them to make a bad decision. To misunderstand something about the will of God. They're going to have to admit that they don't know all the answers, even as we do. Well, how does this happen? It's because if we don't know everything, the corollary truth is it's not that we know nothing either, right? We understand and we study the Word of God as we grow in the Lord Jesus Christ and as we are taught and people teach us, we come to know more and more about who the Lord is. And the more knowledge we have, the more confident we have in our decision-making process and the more right we feel we have to understand what it is we are to do. We might even say the more we think our will is God's will because it's informed by God's Word. And so we have this very interesting scene here. It's a verse that actually gives commentators fits. Verse 4. And having sought out the disciples, that is, Paul sought out the disciples of Tyre, 
We stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember chapter 20 and chapter 19, you may scratch your head. You say, I don't understand this. Paul has already told us that everywhere the Spirit constrains him, chapter 20, verse 22, constrains him to go to Jerusalem. He has to go to Jerusalem because the Spirit has told him. And now, wait a minute, the people at Tyre are telling him through the Spirit not to go. Has the Spirit changed his mind? No, I don't think so. You see, it's about some knowledge. Paul knew what was to happen. Paul knew he needed to be there. But these Christians only knew part of the story. You see, they knew from the Spirit about the suffering that was about to come upon Paul. They knew that Paul would be imprisoned. They knew he would suffer. They knew he would bleed. They knew that eventually he would die because that is what the Spirit told them. And so they said to Paul, what any sensible person would say, Paul, don't do that. You don't need to suffer. You don't need to die. Does that sound familiar? Someone else who made a remark, not you, O Lord. No, may you never die. It's the words on the lips of Peter. When Jesus told him that it was necessary that he would go to Jerusalem and die. And you see, before we are so quick to judge Peter, before we are so quick to judge these disciples and say, get out of the way of the Holy Spirit, we have to understand why they are saying this. They're saying this because they know the value of Paul to the church. If you think about it, if Paul had decided to take a one or two month trip to Persia, we might not have Iran and Hezbollah and terrorism today. That's the kind of worker for God Paul was. If Paul had decided to take a long sea voyage to Japan and China, the church in China might be half a billion large. And you see, they know this. They know the value of Paul. He is what some have termed a high-quality target for Satan. They don't want Paul to suffer, but they don't want the church to lose Paul, and they know the value of Paul in their own lives. They don't want to be without Paul. They've only had him a week. Can you imagine the conversations? Can't you stay another week? We need to hear so much more about Isaiah. Tell us more about Abraham, Paul, please. Please. Tell us more about justification. Couldn't you just stay another day? Just another sermon. You see, they had some knowledge, but they didn't know it all. One of the other things that we need to do in forsaking ourselves is not only to understand we don't have all the knowledge, but we don't have a complete understanding of God's purposes. God's ways are not our ways. You see, what they wanted was good. It just wasn't what God wanted. And that can be frustrating to us, can't it? 
Perhaps some of you here have wanted with all of your heart to have a godly spouse. And you know it's a good thing. It's a biblical thing. You recite Proverbs 31 to yourself. You say, he who finds a wife is blessed. Her price is beyond rubies. You think of raising godly children and all of the things that you can do to serve the Lord and you can't understand why God doesn't get with the program. This is a good thing. This is a biblical thing. It's not a selfish thing. Perhaps that's how these Christians felt. I know that's how the disciples felt. They wanted to see the kingdom of God expand. They wanted to see God be honored and worshipped in the world And they said to Jesus, we can't understand what you're doing here. We finally have an opportunity. Don't you realize last week the crowd was out here cheering you. The city is yours, Lord. What is with this thing with the death? Haven't you read passage after passage after passage about how the Lord has a king? Let's sit down and read Psalm 22 together. Let's read Psalm 24 together. You see, Jesus knew what the will of God was. He understood the purpose of God and that even when we want things that are good, they may not be what God wants for us. You see, because only God sees the end. We may get glimpses of it and its broad contours. We can say things half humorously like we do Sunday evenings, and say, we know the end, God wins. But that's about all we know. We don't know how God is going to take us and our personal story there. And the challenge here for you, the challenge here for me, is to seek the will of God even when something good is what we want. It's part of becoming more like Jesus. It's part of following after Him. It's part of understanding like He understood that the Father's will is not only right, it's good. It's good for us. You see, God has a good purpose in our lives. And God is looking not just at the end, He's looking even at the means as well. I think that's one of the reasons, for example, why the Lord brings back the old-timers. Have you noticed this? Philip comes back on the scene. We haven't seen him in chapters. Agabus comes back on the scene. We haven't seen him for chapters. And the new person we meet, Nason, is described as an old disciple. God is reminding Paul and us that from the beginning... He has fashioned the plan of Paul's life. And so he brings him to Philip. And Philip is a good and curious situation for us because when we last saw Philip, Philip was out changing the world. He's converting Ethiopian eunuchs. He's being swept up by the Spirit. He's one of the seven deacons. He's moving and shaking. And then you recall he just kind of drops off Luke's radar. And we pick him back up here again, and it's 20 years later, and Philip has done... Well, he's the evangelist. He's in Caesarea. Um, He has four daughters. 
Not sons. Four daughters. For 20 years, Philip's lot in life. God's decree for Philip was to be in one place and to quietly labor to build up his church. And he rejoiced in it. Can you rejoice if that's the Lord's will for you? To quietly labor raising godly children. To quietly work and set a testimony for Jesus Christ at work. To quietly maintain a godly reputation. To resist anger. To resist sin. You see, that's what Philip's lot in life was. He could have very easily been upset. He could have very easily been resentful. But he embraced God's will. He submitted to the Lord, even as Paul does here. That's the last way in which we forsake ourselves. We embrace God's will for our lives. Not just God's will out there, but God's will here for us. You see, Paul knows he has to go to Jerusalem. Paul knows what he will face. We see this in verse 23. He says, the Holy Spirit tells me in every city I'm facing imprisonment and afflictions and trials. He knows. And yet he has embraced God's will. He is submitting to the Lord. Children. Do you submit to your parents this way? Even when perhaps you are not sure of everything. Even when you know it will involve difficulty and maybe suffering. Wives, does this describe your cheerful submission to your husband? Knowing that it might bring about trials and difficulties. Men, does this describe how you submit to King Jesus in leading your family? Taking them where you don't want to go. Because that is the path that Jesus has given to you. This is how we forsake ourselves. We submit to the Lord and we trust the Lord. This is what we do as Christians. Well, we don't just forsake ourselves, though. We must take up something positively. This is very Pauline of Luke. There is a a putting off and a putting on. And what Paul puts on is following the Master. He begins by following the Master by bearing His cross, even as the Lord Jesus bore His cross. And there's this wonderful, vivid, Old Testament-like scene. Agabus comes in and he grabs Paul's belt and he says, Look, this is how you will be bound. Hand and foot. You will be turned over. Now, I want you to think about this for a bit if you were Paul. What is perhaps the one thing that marks the Apostle Paul's personality? Can you say... Type A. Well, let's think about it. When he's a Pharisee, he's not just satisfied to be a regular old Pharisee. He's got to be the king of the persecutors, Pharisee. When he's converted, he can't be just a regular old believer. He's got to be a preacher and a minister. And he can't be just any regular old preacher and minister. He's got to be a missionary. And he can't just be any regular old missionary. He's got to be everywhere at once, 
missionary. Everywhere. He's a pastor. He's a missionary. He's an apologist. He's probably the most active person in all of the New Testament, if not the Scripture. And now God is telling him that his will for Paul is to be bound hand and foot. Your work is over, Paul. Your traveling days are done. Your preaching and building are done, Paul, because that's my will. Now, when we think about that, Paul's ability to follow the Master becomes a bit more marked, doesn't it? It's like me telling you, in order to follow Jesus, you have to give up for the rest of your life your favorite food. I can already see the wheels spinning for some of you. He's crazy. That won't do any good. There's so many things I can do with that food. There's no reason I should do that. The Bible doesn't tell me I have to do that. I'm only talking about food. I haven't told you you have to give up your family. I haven't told you you have to give up your homeland. I haven't told you you have to give up your life. I've just said food. And that makes me nervous. But you see, Paul is following in the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is following Jesus. He is bearing his cross. And that cross looks different for everyone. Your cross might be your health. It is sorrowful, but the Lord's lot in your life, his decree for you might be for you to be sickly your whole life so that God can provide opportunities for others to minister. But you won't have a sick body in glory. The Lord's lot in your life might be that you never hold a steady job. You bounce from city to city and place to place. Not sure why he doesn't keep you in one church. Because it might be that the Lord is using you in that way. You won't need a steady job in glory. God's lot for you might be to have a large family to take care of. We have no leisure time. Because the Lord is seeking to build up His church through you and your family. You won't need leisure time in glory. You'll be spending your time worshiping the Lord. We all have crosses to bear. It's biblical. Because what is the Christian life but the process of God making us more like Jesus? And how can you be like Jesus if you have no cross? Count it an honor. Count it all joy, James says, that you have trials because that makes you more like Jesus. You are following in his footsteps even as Paul follows his footsteps. Now with Paul, it it is a bit more marked. We see here in verse 15 that they got ready and they went up to Jerusalem. He sets his face at Jerusalem just as Jesus did. There is a Jewish plot just as there was a plot against Jesus. He is to be delivered to the Gentiles just as Jesus was. Over and over again we see these parallels. And these parallels are here for us because we are to bear our cross. Just as Paul did. Just as Jesus did. Do you expect more than the Master? 
Do you expect to have a better life than the master, the captain of your soul? You shouldn't. The Bible calls us to be like Jesus. And that doesn't just mean bearing a cross, beloved. Because what happened after that cross was born? Our Lord wasn't released, was He? After He bore that cross, He died a terrible death. A horrible death. A necessary death. So that the truth of the Scripture that except a grain of wheat die, it cannot grow again. The church rose because Jesus died and rose. Paul is experiencing that firsthand. He eventually will die. But before he dies, he is going to die to self. He has to give up his ministry. No longer will he preach weekly in a church. He has to give up his friends. We see that twice. They tear him away from the Ephesians. They pray on the beach in Tyre. He has to give up his ministry. He has to give up his friends. And eventually he will give up his life beheaded by a wicked government. He will die just as our Lord died. Again, I ask you, do you expect more than the Master? We bear our cross and we die to self because that is the only way as we follow the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ that we get to that glorious third step. That is, He is risen. He is risen is not just a tweet on Easter. It is not just a response Sunday morning. He is risen is a principle of life. We cannot live but accept He lives. He is risen and therefore we are risen. We will rise from the dead, but as Paul tells us in another place, our citizenship right now is in heaven. All of the muck, all of the sin, all of the pain of this earth is temporary. It is passing through. We rise because Jesus rise. Paul saw the larger purpose. Paul saw that he was being made like Jesus. Paul saw the final victory to be won. Is this the victory you seek? Do you see the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ as the victory that gives you life, purpose, and victory over sin and death? The resurrection is a historical fact. It is proven by witnesses. Skeptics' charges mean nothing, but the resurrection is more than a historical fact. The resurrection is life. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Will you believe in Him tomorrow morning at work? Will you believe in Him next month during exams? Will you believe in Him when you look at the bank balance and wonder how you will pay the mortgage? If you believe in Him, you will never die, the Scripture tells us. That is the great victory that has been won by Jesus for all who trust in Him. Will you trust Him today? 
Will you believe in Him? Will you trust in what He has done that you might know life everlasting? As a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, I call you to that today. In the name of Philip, in the name of Paul, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, You are so dear to us. You provide for us in every way. We ask, O Lord, this morning that You would make the resurrection real to us. That You would remind us that You are indeed our Savior every day. That You are risen every day. Grant to us, O Lord, to seek You in all things, that we might say, Your will, O Lord, not mine, be done. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.